so I thought I'd start with a poem. Um, and this poem is called The Opening of Eyes. It's by the poet David White. That day, I saw beneath dark clouds the passing of light over the water. And I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, that life is not the passing memory of what has been, nor the pages in a great book remaining to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man who, throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven, finds himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love, with solid ground. You know, so there's something really clear about that. And that this this practice also points to. It's not about, um, you know, achieving some perfect vision of what we are or some far-off idea of nirvana. Uh, my teacher, Mahagosananda, um, would say, you know, nirvana is here and now. You know, and, it does, and to the same point, Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen Master, did a calligraphy for the president at my school that simply said, uh, the kingdom is now or never. And she's Christian, so he put it in the kind of Christian terms. But it's the same thing. If we're going to find that someplace, any place, it has to be here in this body, in this mind, and that comes by being able to be present with ourselves. You know, being able to stay with ourselves and stay with whatever is arising. You know, fatigue or restlessness or desire or you know any any of these feelings. And then as we do that, you know, that's where the miracle happens. You know, we f fall in love with the solid ground of our lives. It's befriending who we are already. There's a story about um, one, of, one of these great... Um, teachers in the San Francisco Zen Center line, uh, Ed Brown, who actually started at the at their retreat center, Tassajara, as a cook. So there would be many, many people coming through, and he would make biscuits. He would strive to make biscuits the way that he had seen them, you know, on the Bisquick commercials, all fluffy and white and golden, you know, or... Um, you know, it, there's there's some there's some ideal biscuit out there, but his biscuits never looked like that. 
Yeah, like maybe they were like a little bit more chunky. Or... And yet people gave him the feedback. They were really loving those biscuits, right, as they were. And so finally one day he had the capacity to actually pick one up and eat it and experience what they were experiencing rather than comparing it in his mind to what should be, hypothetically. And so very often we do that. You know, here in California, we might call it like looking good. You know, we want to be that um, whatever, you know, that that surfer person or, um, you know, some something that is different than what we are, you know, kind of doing a subtle violence to who are what we are already. And this practice is different from that. You know, as we sit, um, you know, we might have ideas like, oh, you know, if I had a cup of coffee before I came in, my practice would be excellent. You know, or if I had uh, a different boss, I would have the perfect job. You know, or if it just wasn't for my mind, my meditation would be great. You know, and so of course that's not what we're trying to accomplish here. This is not a self-improvement project. It's it's a real um, radical acceptance of of who and what we are, and and radical acceptance of the moment also, just as it is. You know, in the, the past couple of weeks, we have been visiting. Um, a poem by the third Zen patriarch, which um, we'll return to. Um, but basically, it starts off by saying, the great way is not difficult for those who make no distinctions. When like and dislike disappear, the clear way is undisguised. You know, a tenth of an inch of difference, heaven and earth are separate. You know, so that tenth of an inch of difference is what happens when we're kind of setting this one thing up against the other. You know, the hypothetical biscuit, the real biscuit, our uh, um, hypothetical practice, our actual practice. But where we actually have power and clarity is in the present moment. You know, so bringing, bringing ourselves fully to that you know, as if this moment mattered. Because this is actually the only moment that we have to live. So when we do that, that's that's that place um, that David White is speaking about. You know, our, the opening of eyes long closed. You know, we see things as if for the first time. Because we're really here to see them. You know, we fully inhabit the space where we are. You know, and that's a, a gift because no one else can see the world, hear the world, love the world in the way that you can or that I can. And that, that simple practice of being present, um, that's our gift. 
to ourselves, but also to the world. You know, shining the light in this corner of the world where we are. So, in the uh, lineage of Bernie Glassman, a Zen master who um, worked very closely with Joan Halifax, who's one of uh, our sensation Zen's teachers, and I've also been influenced by Bernie. He called it bearing witness. You know, so as we're sitting here, um, being present and and with a kind of deep listening. And it's not a an uh, a passive thing, although it does require patience. Patience is, is a more active thing. It's um, you could say forbearance. You know, actively being with whatever arises. You know, as we do so, what's necessary is a kind of shedding process. You know, we begin to let go of all those things we were telling ourselves. You know, we begin to drop the old storylines. You know, we can sort of like bless them. You know, okay, yes, I see you. I witness you, but I'm not identifying with that. And as we do that, we begin to see and hear things in their own voices. We begin to hear a voice other than our own. And that's the kind of beauty. And then the next part, of course, is now that we're seeing clearly, how do we take that on the road? So that um, taking the practice out on the road is um, what Bernie calls simply compassionate action. Being able to sense into the body, perceive and respond. So it's not an idea. You know, it's, it's um, not even an intended response, it's a natural response. You know, so he compares it to the way that, you know, if this arm, you know, got struck with something, then this one would just reach out, you know, to support it. You know, this arm wouldn't be saying, you know, that left arm is always bumping into things. No, you know, because they already understand. It's whole one whole body. You know, so as we practice and we get out of our own way, then we begin to see that we and others, we and the world are one body. You know, so then what's that spontaneous response? You know, what what is our compassionate and clear response to the re- innermost request of the moment? So he founded this group called the Zen Peacemaker Order, you know, to really bring that to life, to into the, the places um, that really heat up the furnace of the heart, you know, these doing meditation out on the street um, with a, a kind of temporary homelessness or doing uh, meditation out in Auschwitz. And that's a place where many people would fear to go. Like, how can you possibly stay open and present in a place like that? But as you do, you know, then then out of that, you know, a deeper healing arises, which is not only ours, 
those are my kind of reflections for this morning. This is the time we open up for questions. Any kind of questions? <coughs> or maybe everyone already got enlightenment and there's no question. Mm-hmm. I have a question. I have been with and was practicing more regularly prior and I think I was afraid of the pain and practicing with the pain so I stopped practicing mm. and went into mental trying to figure it out yeah. before I came back so could you speak to that? Oh yeah, well there's different levels I can speak to that mm. I am actually pretty experienced in practicing with pain I, I think I mean, I'm certainly not the only one, but every time I've gone on a long retreat, I've experienced um, different kinds of pain. I think my first 90-day retreat, I had, um, you know, some issue with my knee. The second one, um, 10 days into the 90-day retreat, I had back spasms. Just like, not beautiful after you've flown all the way to Korea to sit in meditation. Um, so I did the rest of that retreat lying down, uh, meditating. And I don't know, I, I guess I could, I have a, a little litany there. But, so the first thing is um, trying different meditation postures and different cushions because it really does make a difference. We are all configured differently. And, um, Sometimes, if we adapt that, then we find that we get the support that we need. You know that the you know pain can be giving us a message that, you know, this is simply not the right configuration. Um, you know, maybe a higher cushion, um, a different stance. So that's basic. Um, the next level of the sitting with pain would be. Um, And of course, one there are stretches you know that one can do. There are certain yoga postures that are helpful, you know. But beyond those kind of technical things, there's the ability to be with it. Um, on another one of my 90-day retreats, I had sinusitis, and so every time that I was breathing, I was mindfully aware that my sinuses were inflamed. And so, what about that? when I was able to really uh, go into that, at first, whatever the pain was would intensify, you know, but then through focused awareness, I was able to, to really perceive that, that the pain itself is not a constant thing that changes. You know, we can see, maybe it's, uh, there's a warmth to it, there's a pull. And then as we notice the, the variations in it and continue to breathe through it, you know, really breathing from the lower belly, then that pain bec- becomes revealed as not so solid. You know, that there are you know, uh, spaces within that in which um, it shifts and changes. And that's actually, I, I feel, a really good thing to explore because, um, 
you know, as we do that, in my experience, it, that there's a physical healing that often takes place. That, you know, within the relief of the sitting meditation, you know, as we bring ourselves fully to that, um, and whatever sensation, physical or emotional, um, intensifies, it's also releasing. It's like a volcano sometimes, lots of heat and pressure. When we're able to get out of the way and just let it happen, um, there is a certain relief in that. And things in our psyche and our body shift altogether. You know, I, I can't, um, you know, like speak enough about what that mind-body connection is and how that has shown up for me during meditation. And then a third thing is uh, trying different forms of meditation so that there are times when sitting on a cushion isn't going to be the thing. Maybe for the correct relationship to our body, we can do walking meditation and the, and the body is going to benefit from that movement and it's a way of staying physically focused and present. Or we can do chanting meditation. And the chanting is a great way um, to shift, particularly emotional energy. And in fact, much more efficient than sitting meditation for that. My teacher would say that sitting meditation was like dry cleaning the mind, chanting like steam cleaning. And there are people you know, who will feel more affinity with one or the other. Um, It's, uh, it's sort of like an ongoing dance to see, you know, what, what is it that is um, our right relationship to pain this time. Yeah. Any? Yeah. Um, so I'm fairly new at this. Can you elaborate on, um, I guess, how what what the what you're kind of supposed to be aiming for? Like I, I understand that you're supposed to be paying attention to your body mm -hmm. um, very closely, but also calming your mind. Yeah. Well, as we as we watch our breath, mm -hmm. you know, so we can watch our breath, and as we're watching the breath, we uh, begin to see it as if under a microscope. You know, one one way of watching it is just finding that place where the in breath ends and the out breath begins. And as we watch that more and more closely, you know, it's like a colon in and of itself because, you know, where does that happen? You know, is, isn't the, um, you know, in, in some way it, it becomes revealed as like one whole cycle. But physically watching that, then um, all those 10,000 things in the mind come back to one point which is just this breath, just this body, just this moment. And yes, you know, that definitely is very centering. So one thing that is, is going on is that very often in modern life we have a lot of mental energy or emotional energy, and it brings a balance again between the mind and the heart with the gut. When our energy comes down here, then we're centered, like a samurai, right? Any situation is no problem. 
So that's one simple understanding of what's going on. Um, you know, as we sit, you know, with the intention of experiencing just one thing, you know, what arises in the heart and mind is exactly what um, has been requesting our attention. You know, so uh, if it seems like the mind is suddenly busy, it's actually like that all the time. It's just because we're sitting here, you know, we're perceiving that. So we can witness, you know, that bearing witness to our patterns of whatever it may be. Our patterns of like worrying or self-consciousness or um, restlessness or, you know, or, you know, thinking about our laundry list, whatever it is, you know, by being able to bear witness to that without identifying with it, you know, seeing that like clouds in the sky. So we don't need to push the clouds away. We don't need to identify with them. We're just letting them be. And then as we do that, what's going to happen is we have that much more um, inner freedom when we walk into life. It's, uh, very often we are experiencing some kind of dissatisfaction. You know, we want something we don't have. We have something we don't want. There's the imbalance of the body you know, or being separated from the people that we care about. I mean, Buddha identified those kind of basic food groups 2,000 years ago. You know, so then how does that, you know, relate to why we're sitting? Because as we're sitting and we get a kind of tolerance for that, um, you know, we develop equanimity. So whatever, whatever it is, you know, we like it, we don't, we don't like it, but we can set aside the like and dislike and simply be present. You know, so as we're able to do that, you know, in the world outside of these doors, then we experience a happiness that isn't dependent on conditions. Like, um, we can't change the way the wind is blowing, but we can change the way that we set our sails. And then that is, becomes what we call resilience. So that, for instance, in traffic, because, you know, we're here in Southern California, we all have traffic. Um, when we're in traffic, right, instead of feeling impatient, right, and feeling that um, stress response kick in, feeling our breath get tight and our body get tight, you know, we can use that as a moment. Oh, you know, here we are. It's a red light. You know, I can pause and take a few deep breaths. And if we do that every time there's a red light, then we could get out of the car more relaxed than the way we came in. People really do that. And then out of that, what happens is we have more um, love and clarity and energy um, for the people and the things we care about because you know, our whole system's running that much more efficiently. And then, you know, across time, that makes, you know, many miracles happen. It, it makes it possible very often for us to achieve what we want to achieve because we're able to harness, you know, our inner space and focus it in a way that would be uh, challenging otherwise. So, 
that's my two cents. But really, what I would suggest is you just try this out for a month and you say, okay, at the end of a month, then either this worked for me or it didn't. You know, but it takes a little bit of time because it's like developing a new muscle. If you wanted to run a marathon, you wouldn't just go out of the door here and try to run 26 miles, because if you did, you'd probably hurt yourself and say, I don't know what they're talking about with that runner's high. You know, but on the other hand, if you went and you trained consistently every day, every day, every day, let's see how this is, then yes, you know, you know, doing that great run is possible. And so this is just the same. So we say, try, try, try. You know, if you have that try mind and some kind of direction, which is, you know, like, what am I? What is this? You know, what it's all about, really. Then, absolutely, that's the same as if you'd already arrived. But it's 12, so thank you very much. <laughs>